Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning, guys. Um, hope you guys are good. Uh, it's good to be back up here. I uh, hope your Thanksgiving uh, went as well as it could have, considering the circumstances that we're all in. Um, I'm fresh out of quarantine, so um, I feel like kind of like a hobo right now. My barber is shut down, um, and I haven't had human interaction for almost three weeks, uh, real live human interaction for like three weeks. So sorry if I um, come out uh, kind of overexcited to see each one of you guys. I haven't seen anybody. <laughs> um, but I do want to say this. I want to say uh, thank you. Um, to everybody that's kind of just checked on me. Uh, TJ called me almost just about every day. Um, and I just appreciate everybody that reached out, offered something. Um, uh, by God's grace, um, everything was good. I didn't really develop any hardcore symptoms of COVID. And um, I feel great. So that's not the case for everybody. And I'm just grateful. Um, it was for me. Anyways. Uh, let's let's open up with a word, a prayer, and then we'll we'll jump into our text for this morning. Uh, Father, we just ask uh, that you would help us this morning. That you would uh, meet us here. We've already seen that you've met us here through song, Lord. I pray that you would also meet us here through your word. Uh, your word says that when it goes out, it does not return void. And we're grateful for that. That's how powerful your word is. Lord, we, we also lift up just this time that we're going to have together. We ask that your spirit would meet us here, would work in our hearts, in our minds, help us to understand your word correctly, and help us to be better, a better representation of who you are here now. Lord, help us to love each other well, Help us to uh, seek you as our one true refuge. Don't let me get in the way of what you want to do here this morning. Let me just be a mouthpiece for you this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this morning we're going to find ourselves in the Psalms. For some of my friends, we're probably thinking that's nothing new. Um, I'm kind of a fanboy of the Psalms. I've been in there for the last three years, pretty hardcore, um, mainly because I feel like through one of the toughest times in my life, God used the Psalms to minister to my heart in a way that I feel like I've never been ministered to. And so out of that joy, out of that delight that I found in God, I wanted to share it with you all. And so we find ourselves in Psalm 16. Um, it's, been, it's really become a place, a safe place, I can say, for me to wrestle with God, right? And to also learn about God and who he is and ultimately find that wrestling with God is a losing battle and finding joy in that, lo- in that loss. So let's go ahead and start with verse one of Psalm 16. This is a Psalm of David. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. It's a good word. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or death or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a good word. So let me ask you a question. We're gonna kick this off with a question. TJ's influenced me quite a bit. <laughs> uh, who is God for you? Okay, is there, is there a word that comes to mind when you think about who God is for you? Can you, can you put a word on it? You know, when I, when I think about this question myself, um, I think about my personal, uh, I, I will say, I'll share my personal evolution in trying to answer this question. My, it's kind of an adventure, okay? Seminary was the first place I learned about Reformed theology, right? And it was like, it was like wearing the new uh, Nikes, right? It was like, it was the hot thing at the time. Right, and everyone wanted to basically rock with Reformed theology, right? You had John Piper, um, you had the Mark Driscolls, you had uh, the R.C. Sprawls, and a lot of these guys are good guys. But dudes would, dudes would show up wearing fresh new John Calvin t-shirts or Martin Luther t-shirts, you know, the ones with the five solas and that old school English print, and wearing their, you know, carrying their goatskin ESV Bibles that cost like $400, and it was surprisingly in seminary, it became like, all right, who, whoever wore the most Calvin gear was usually like the holiest of the, the rest of the dudes there. Um, but for me, I felt out of place. I felt out of place because I, I was showing up with Misfits t-shirts. You know, I don't know if you know what a Misfits t-shirt is, but it's a black t-shirt with a white skull on the front and it had Misfits written in blood splatter pattern in the back. And I would just walk in kind of like, hey, let's just open up this Bible and let's go for it. And I, I was out of place, right? But then before seminary, God was whoever my father said that God was or whichever, I guess, cool, uh, you know, in fashion book that I read at the time. But I remember seminary the most because that was a formative time for me. It laid a foundation, it laid a base for, for where I am now, even with my relationship with Jesus. I will say this, my view of who God was at that time was very imbalanced. 
At the time, I had a hyper-focus on, on God as this, as this judge, this wrathful kind of disciplinarian type of God. There's very little love in my message. There's very little delight or joy in the message that I would share with others. And while God can certainly be those type of things, he, there is a wrathful side to God. There is a judge. There is, there is a consequences for wrongdoing with God. But my problem was this hyper-focus I had on those specific attributes. And I think the most harmful thing I noticed in myself at that time was that this was the type of God I would tell others about, was this angry, vengeful, wrathful God. Now, I know I'm not supposed to make God attractive, but if you want to scare someone off from Jesus, you just tell him he's going to beat you with a stick because of everything you've done wrong. Now, for David, you'll see in the Psalms that he's very consistent in who God is for him. Specifically in Psalm 16, God is a refuge. In the Psalms, God is referred to as a refuge at least 24 times, or used common vocabulary to refer to God as a safe place, as a shelter, as a protection. And this is big, because we want consistency, right? We want to know that who God says he is, is who he is. Okay, we want that consistency. We can't, we can't cash in on a God who is wishy-washy or inconsistent. We want to know that when we turn to God, that he will be who he says he is going to be, every time without fail. So God is a refuge. And that's what, that's what David tells us in the first verse. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, this whole line, this first verse, shapes the whole chapter. It's important for us to understand this. So I want to help us think about this in a good way. So let's think about this first verse in two terms. Declaration and petition. David declares God is his refuge. And, then as, and because that God is his refuge, he petitions that God would preserve him. Right? David's petitions are informed by the character of God. That's a sermon on its own. Right? We can, I can do that today, but that's not what I'm here for today. So who is God for you? Right? I, like, I like, personally like that David often referred to God as a refuge. That would imply that he maybe didn't feel safe often. Maybe he felt under attack or in harm's way in some sort of way. Whether it was um, from enemies, his own personal struggles, his sins, we can read, we read about that. Right? We know about his own struggles. So David continues this flow throughout the first eight verses of this psalm. In light of the refuge that David has found in God, David starts in these eight verses to recount these beautiful truths about who God is. And this is the problem with us here, is that often the hustle and the craziness of life can bog us down to the point where we can often just forget who God is. And it's often, what we'll learn is that in this safe place, this refuge, 
this shelter, this protection from God. And this place is where we can, we can actually, with a clear mind, a clean heart, start to recount these beautiful, glorious truths of who God is. So refuge now is, refuge in God now acts as a springboard, a springboard into a deep, fruit-filled, beautiful relationship with God. Now, I think it's worth bringing to our attention the very first thing that David notices in this first place, in this safe place. Check this out, in verse two, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. See, David now is defining the relationship. He's saying, you are my Adonai. You are sovereign. David is rejoicing over the sovereign rule of God over his life. But I, I think personally also, I, I feel like this communicates something that's, that, that we can also take away from. I think this communicates humility. Right? It takes humility to realize that the best thing about me has nothing to do with my accomplishments, my social status, the number in my bank account, the life that I can gain for myself here and now, or dare I say, even the beautiful family that I can build today. All these things are blessings, they're great. I'm not attacking those things, but they are not the best thing about you or me, right? The best thing about you and me is that we get to be in communion with God. And under this refuge that we find in God, we get to learn and grow into a deep relationship with the Father. It's in his refuge that we can, we can gain this deep intimacy with God. Refuge in God re- results in a deep relationship with God. Now, David continues throughout this psalm to, to help us to see the benefits of this relationship. I think, I think verse three can, can personally, I, I think that verse three often poses the biggest challenge to us here. Not just here at Redemption's Hill, but I think Big C Church. And this is where we kind of see almost a slight detour in how David talks about God. Because now he's not talking about God directly, he's talking about people. So he, he transitions from speaking about God directly to speaking about the people of God. And David says, as for the saints, saints meaning those who are set apart, holy, godly people, those who have chosen to follow Jesus, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David here is talking about us. He's the people who have been set apart for God. He's talking about the church. We are the saints, people who love God and treasure him. And David is finding all his delight in these people, these set apart people. Now, it doesn't mean that he delights in them more than he delights in God. This means that David is pleased with his people. Now, why is David pleased with his people? Well, because his people actually love and delight in God as well. And because he, they delight in God as well, he delights in them. 
You know, like, like I said in verse two, where, where, where God is the best thing about me, God is the best thing about you. That is our shared bond. Now, I said that I feel like this can often pose the biggest challenges to us, and I'll explain why. Right? Now, in this psalm, we understand that the backdrop is David finding refuge in God. So David is under the refuge of God right now. And I think this matters for us because it will be hard, it will be difficult, it will be a challenge for us to delight in one another outside of that refuge, outside of that safe place. Our love for God should inspire our love for each other. Listen, I get it. It's hard to love people the way that God wants us to love them. And it will be difficult for us to love each other or the saints when we are finding refuge in something other than God. Which then poses another question altogether. What are you finding refuge in? Right? If you're not, if you're not sure how to answer that, let me help you. Right? During a stressful time, a trial, or even a challenge in life, to whom or what do you turn to? Right? Where is your real or functional salvation or refuge? What is that thing, that person, or circumstance we turn to for life, hope, and salvation? Is that thing a false refuge? Let me, I want to give you an example. In Isaiah, the prophet, he continuously warned the people of Israel about their sin, about their idolatry. He also warned them that, hey, there's trouble for you on the way because of this rebellion, right? The judgment is coming and there would be consequences for breaking their covenant with God. And then over time, what happens? An army shows up. An army shows up and threatens the people of Israel. Now, now as a result of this, this present challenge, who do they turn to? They turned to Egypt. They looked to Egypt to rescue them. And they hoped that Pharaoh would send his armies to save them. Essentially, they turned to Egypt for refuge and salvation. Now, can you imagine God's response to that? Well, we got a response. He responds to them in Isaiah 30, where he says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Doesn't sound positive to me. So Israel looked to Egypt as their refuge. And honestly, when I'm looking at it, just with unbiased opinion, it makes sense, right? It's relatable, right? They, they were, Egypt was an attractive option. They're neighbors, they're right next door to each other, and they had everything at the time. They had wealth, strength, power, and the ability to provide what Israel needed at a moment's notice. Now, I don't want to be that preacher, but I'll say this. We've all got Egypts, right? We've all got 
Egypt. Right? We've all sought refuge in something that wasn't God. And this is why I believe it's our biggest challenge to delight in one another. Because when we seek refuge in other things, our relationships start to suffer. Community starts to suffer. David's delight was fueled by his delight in God. In turn, our love and delight for each other should be fueled, should be inspired by our love and delight for God. It will be hard to love people if you don't love God. And why should you make God your refuge, right? All of these other things are super convenient, attractive, easy to get. But I'm going to tell you why. Verses 5 and 6. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Declaration. David is now, he's done asking. He's declaring truths over his life. David is declaring that God is his choice. God is his chosen portion and cup. Remember something. David is a king. If anybody has multiple attractive options to pick for refuge, David. He has more options than we did. He could have literally chosen a million other things for refuge, for a quick fix. He has everything he needs. But his choice is God. He chooses God. Now we know that David also has a history of doing some shady stuff. But here in Psalm 16, he chooses God. Now why is God the best option for David? And I think everybody will say, oh, that's, that's easy. That's real easy to answer. But I, functionally, it's not as easy to carry out. Right, so we can find that answer in the second, second half of verse five where David says, you hold my lot. All right, so let me, story time. So I used to live, I didn't even write this down, but it immediately came to mind. I used to live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Five minute bike ride to the beach, paradise. Right, from street to street, you didn't know what was gonna happen. You might, you might roll up on a food truck, food truck or you might get shot at. It was, it was pretty awesome. Right? And my house was like a five minute bike ride to the beach, and sometimes you had to go through some sketchy areas to get there, but you did it. And, I'll, but I'll never forget my time living there. My roommate was one of the best people I've ever met in my life. Um, his name was Andy. We called him Dr. Beardface. That's a Scrubs rock reference, if you know that. Um, the, but the time we spent living there was deeply formative for me as a Christian. I considered, so I considered myself this hardcore um, Calvinist at the time. And I think God was weaning me away from this kind of this judgy, wrathful, angry kind of Christian, right? And so he put me with what I thought was, at that time was one of the softest dudes in the world. But I think God used him to soften my heart, okay? 
because the God that I would share with other people was this, this punitive, judge, judgy type of God. So anytime that I was facing a trial or I was dealing with my personal within my sin, I automatically thought, clearly I'm being punished for something I've done wrong. I messed up somewhere, I'm being punished. Right, and I thought, as a result of my own imbalanced theology, I became fearful, I became angry, I became scared. All of these things, right? And so, in light of that feeling, I, my natural reaction was to fight, right? Fight to be a better person, fight to fix things, fight against sin. And surely the Bible calls us to fight against sin. But fighting the way I was fighting and how the Bible tells us to fight, two different things. I thought I could fix everything on my own. And I thought God was in the mix, but it was just me. But there are times when you just need to sit down. You just lay back. And I remember, I, was, I don't remember specifically what I was dealing with, but I remember just dealing with this wave of depression and anxiety. I didn't really know how to deal with it. And um, Andy, I, you know, I was talking to him about it, and he just, his wisdom was, dude, stop fighting. Just stop. Stop fighting and submit. Now, I, I take Andy's wisdom with a lot of weight in my life because... His story is one of immense loss and heartbreak and, and just overwhelming battles and trials in life. And his, 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 his reaction to all those things was, God holds my lot. Submission was radical submission on a level that I've never seen in my life. And this is what we see here. David talks about, you hold my lot. In the refuge of God, there's a time where we just drop our weapons. We just, we kind of say, okay, God is going to go forward and fight my battles for me. Right? And this is, what, this is what submission looks like when we say, God holds my lot. This is radical submission of your life to God. So however this all plays out, God still rules over this. He has not left the throne. He is still over all of this. And can I say this as well? There's not one election result that has ever removed God from the throne. And that sounds cliche, right? There's one side that is angry, about the results, and there's another side that feels immense relief from this result. The reaction is the issue. The truth is that whoever wins an election, God is still on the throne. And I know that's a cliche thing to say, but God holds your lot, even over election results. So what's the result of radical submission to God? I'm telling you, man, the Psalms just, they know how to write it. 
right? It's like the best hip-hop artist ever, right? We see it in verse six. David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, one thing I understand about submission is that it can often feel like a fearful and anxious endeavor. The, the, that, that pursuit of submission gets you panicky, right? Because you, you like, I like, control. But here we have, I think, a solid case for radical submission. Because his submission to God has actually landed him in a beautiful place. And not just for the present, but we also see for the future. And for us, right here, right now, our beautiful inheritance is Christ. Right? The first thing that came to my mind was Ephesians 1.11, where Paul says, in Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works thing, all things according to the counsel of his will. Christ is our inheritance. And there's no better place to land than in Christ. But let's continue through the psalm. We have a beautiful inheritance in Christ, and these are the results of this beautiful inheritance. And now I just, I'm picturing David writing this psalm Right? In the beginning, he seemed a little worried, a little scared. He wanted refuge. He wanted a safe place, whatever he was kind of trying to run from. But now I feel like David is just celebrating. Right? I, feel, I feel like David is now just worshiping, and he's seeing all the fruit of being in the safe place of God, being in this refuge. Right? In verse 7, you'll see, he says, this is like a great prayer. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, and my heart instructs me. Right? One of the main benefits of making God our refuge is that he counsels and instructs us. So if we come across danger, sin, harm, trials, God counsels us. He gives us an escape. And this is one of the main ways that he exhibits to us his, his refuge, what it looks like to be in his refuge, is this, this counsel, this instruction that he'll give us. And, and part of submission and, and gaining this counsel and instruction is being able to be used by God as an instrument for his glory. So through his counsel, we get the knowledge, right, and the privilege of playing a part in redemptive history so we can, so we can make his name known to the nations. Right, there's a, now we know this, there's a plethora of options available to us to find counsel. Right, the marketplace is filled with, with different ways to improve your lives so that it's centered about, around what you believe is best for you. And some of them might actually be harmless, but one thing that's true is that the counsel of God will outlast all of these options. Right? God's counsel will even frustrate your own plans at times. He will spoil your plans so that you could see him in the middle of all of this. Right, that's what we see in Psalm 33, where the psalmist says, the, th the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. 
He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's counsel will often bear little to no resemblance to the world's counsel, right? And the best part about it is that it doesn't change with time. It stays the same. Now, there seems to be a shift of how David starts to speak now in comparison to how he started in the first verse of the psalm. At the start, David prays that God would preserve him. He sounded a little anxious, a little fearful about what might be coming his way. Now it feels like he's confident in verse 8. You see, like he's continuing this this celebration and this worship, but he's he's starting to feel confident because now he's, he's heavily declaring truths about God over his life. Right, and that, that, that flow kind of feels relatable too because right, when you start pursuing the refuge of God, it's kind of like this fearful thing at first. You're like, I, I kind of want this refuge, but I also kind of want control, right? And so, so what happens is that you start off a little sluggish. You're a little slow on it. You're kind of dipping your toes in the pool to see how cold it is. Um, but now David is fully immersed in this refuge. He's, he's deep. And then he's starting to see like, maybe this whole thing works. Maybe this actually works. So we'll see this in verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Declaration, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Declarative statements over his life as a result of finding refuge in who God is. So David's done asking. He is affirming here. Instead of asking God to preserve him, he's, he hasn't moved on from that, but he's, 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 God is preserving him. He's having more confidence. And now he's, he's sure that God has preserved him and will preserve him. And this is something that we need to speak into our lives. God will preserve me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. In the refuge of God, our confidence in God becomes unshakable. We can, we can speak with confidence that God will do what he said he was going to do. And out of this confidence, David uses one of my favorite words in all of scripture, therefore. Because you know he's about to drop one here, right? Therefore, we're moving from unshaken confidence in the preservation of God to deep everlasting joy. Check this out. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, you'll miss a lot if you isolate verses 9 and 10. Right, without fully grasping the importance of verse eight. Joy in God will be hard to obtain without the unshakable confidence that God will preserve you. Right, we're seeing verse one coming to life. We're seeing it come to fruition. David isn't asking God to preserve him anymore because he knows, he's sure that it will happen. But David doesn't stop there. David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or death. You will not abandon my soul to death. 
we see this unshakable confidence taking over the psalm. You see, death will not cancel out all that we have known and loved about God. Death will not be the end of your relationship with God. That's, that's, that's the point, that death will come. See, we, as a church, we believe this. Death is just the beginning of the good part. The good stuff happens when, when death after death. We get to be, as a church, in the presence of God, worshiping together the way that God intended it to be. And then David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. These are the fruits of unshakable confidence in the refuge of God. You see, the world will offer endless paths to life. There's so many things out there competing for our, for our identities, for our validation, for our hearts, for our hope, for our trust, for our salvation. But Jesus says in John 14, he says, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says in John 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. All the paths in life that are presented before us will not last, but Jesus lasts. Ultimately, when we say you hold my lot, Jesus held our lot. He took everything and he took it at the cross and he put it on his back for us. Jesus holds our lot. We can find refuge in God. We can approach the throne with unshakable confidence because of that event, because of Jesus. Band, you can come back up. Um, I want to pray for us, and then, and then um, we'll jump back into worship. Now, we also do communion every week, and there's single serving um, communion cups in the back. But let's pray, and then I'll read our communion text. Father. Thank you so much for just this, this grace and this love and this hope and joy that we find in you. I pray that in this season, if we're struggling to find hope, joy, or refuge, Lord, that we would seek you. Your word says that you will preserve us. God, we ask boldly that you would preserve us. Right now, it's a hard time to know how to love one another. But Lord, we know that out of a love for you, you will instruct us, you will counsel us on how to love one another. So help us to love one another, but most importantly, help us to love you. Father, thank you for your 
for your grace, your love, and your mercy that you showered on us. Help us to approach your throne with boldness, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done on the cross with your son. We have access, Lord, and it's a beautiful thing. Help us to understand that privilege. Help us to, to find joy and delight there. Help us to delight in one another. Now, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Now, one of the ways that we commemorate what Christ has done on our behalf is through communion. Okay? Now, everybody is free to participate. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. Let's read the communion text in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. The word says, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May we never forget this truth. Amen.